Hello, everyone, and welcome to A Cast of Kings, an unofficial podcast about the HBO original series, Game of Thrones. My name is David Chen, and I've never read any of the books in George R.R. R. Martin's A Song of Ice and Fire. My name is Joanna Robinson, and I've read every book in George R.R. R. Martin's A Song of Ice and Fire. And we have a special guest today. Uh, as we have mentioned a few times during the course of this podcast, A Cast of Kings is only possible due to the generosity of uh, you listeners out there. And, uh, in fact, uh, many of... The people listening to the show ended up donating to the show, and one person made a very significant donation, which has entitled them a place in this bonus episode of A Cast of Kings. Andrea, welcome to A Cast of Kings. How are you doing tonight? I am doing great, and I have also read all the books like Joanna. I see. Uh-oh, you're outnumbered, man. Yeah, it's a pretty bad situation. Now, <laughs> now Andrea, uh, just out of curiosity, how did you come across uh, A Cast of Kings? Just reading information. Actually, I had read Joanna's writings before over at Jiva, so that's oh, how I know about it. Excellent, excellent. Well, thank you so much for your donation. Uh, you are certainly we really welcome. Um, and I, I uh, assume you are a fan of the second season, which is what, mo- what, what uh, moved you to donate to... Uh, uh, our podcast for the third season. Certainly, certainly. And that's also good to hear, like, quality exposition about quality entertainment. Excellent. Well, uh, I'm glad you think that highly of us. But, oh, my uh, God, that's my favorite poll quote. We yes. need to put that on, some, on like, the box set of the podcast. That's thank right. you, Andrea. That's our, I, think, I think that's, like, our first and only blurb that we've ever gotten. So that's thank right. you. Excellent. I think you've had more. <laughs> All right. Well, we really appreciate it, Andrea. And, of course, uh, we appreciate everyone who donated to the show. And speaking of shows uh, and podcasts and, uh, you know, recap and exposition and so on and so forth, uh, we should announce, Joanna Robinson, that we are likely going to be kicking off another Kickstarter for uh, another TV podcast that we'll be doing. Uh, It's called The Ones Who Knock. That's The Ones Who Knock. You can find it at theoneswhoknock.com. And it is a uh, recap podcast about Breaking Bad, which is going to go into its final eight episodes starting in August of 2013. Uh, So if you want to hear us uh, recap the final eight episodes of Breaking Bad, go to theoneswhoknock.com and you will find more information there uh, about the final eight episodes of Breaking Bad and the recap episodes that will follow it. Um, If you want to keep track of what's going on here with us at the Cast of Kings, just go to facebook.com slash a cast of kings. That's facebook.com slash a cast of kings. We got uh, a little over a thousand likes there, and uh, I'm really liking all the content that uh, people are commenting there. And, and, and we will try to be putting out content, you know, somewhat like irregularly throughout the interim time period <laughs> between now and, and the next season of Game of Thrones. So, uh, and we'll also post information there about, uh, about our next podcast projects as well. So, uh, I would follow us at facebook.com slash a cast of kings to learn more. Uh, so what are we going to talk about this episode? We thought we would take this episode to talk about all of the feedback and emails that came in uh, in response to uh, the last episode of a cast of kings. That was uh, everything uh, covering everything through the end of season three. So we are going to be spoiling everything through season three of, a ca- uh, of uh, Game of Thrones this episode, and uh, we will not be spoiling anything from future episodes of Game of Thrones or any future developments in the books. Uh, now, before we begin, Andrea, let me ask you this question. Uh, what did you think of season three? Like, of the seasons, how would you rank season three? Did you overall like it, or uh, did you think it was a disappointment? 
No, I thought I thought it was well done, but I think that season two was better. Um, but season three, yeah, it had its moments. Yeah. What What was better about season two, in your opinion? I don't know. It just it didn't feel like it had the same. Um, like the exposition, the development were just a, a little slower to build up, but like the payoff just wasn't as good. You know, everybody wanted the red wedding. Everybody wanted these scenes, but it was just sort of jumbled, if that makes sense. It just didn't feel quite as powerful or, or quite as moving, honestly. Interesting. Interesting. So, so what's your stack ranking of the seasons then? I think season two is definitely, definitely the, the best so far. Wow. Oh, man. That is that is my last out of the three seasons. Well, you know, that's that's it's just almost the like of different art. people like different things. I know oh. it is shocking to <laughs> me. Imagine that it is. So I would go. So it would be season two for you, and then what after that? Season one, and then season three. Probably, yeah. Okay, how about you, Joanna Robinson? Um, you know, two and three are pretty well tied for me. Yeah, I kind of I agree so. with I kind of agree with Andrea in terms of, um, you know, the red wedding was such an emotional episode. But it did seem like the season hung a lot on that one episode. And you could say the same thing about last year in Blackwater. But I think overall, I agree with Andrea that it was a little stronger overall. But then maybe the Red Wedding itself was such an important episode that that. Oh, I mean, sort of absolutely. I mean, you're talking about like, you know, like the importance of that episode within the, within the context of canon. Obviously, I mean, you can't override that at all. But season two just seemed so much tighter. And there was just so much build up to, to the Red Wedding and everybody knew about it. And Blackwater, I mean, frankly, you're building up to a battle. And that's a whole different thing than building up to a slaughter, in my opinion. Yeah. No, I, mean, I agree. I think, I think that's I valid. I think that's valid. Uh, I think where I deviate from your guys' opinion is that season three gave us two holy crap moments. Because uh, of Astapor? Because of Astapor. Because of the sacking of Astapor, I mean, that is just magnificent. Okay, yeah. and, and so I would rank them season one, season three, season two, myself. Uh, just because in season, you know, every single, epi- every single season, right, between Baylor, um, uh, Blackwater, and then uh, Reigns of Castamere, right, each, each season had an episode nine that was pretty spectacular. But season three also had an episode four that was pretty spectacular. Yes, um, and... and- I don't know about you guys, but I mean, I, I watched that episode for like the last like 10 minutes of that episode over and over and over again. It, that was amazing. I, I, mean, I, was I confess, the best I actually, 10 minutes of the series, I think. I, I mean, I confess, I actually also watched it several times. <laughs> it was super rewatchable for it's, sure. It was very good. Yeah. It was very good. I mean, even, yeah, the way it's executed is just so skillful. Like the, the editing, you know what I mean? Like they, the reveal that Danny knows what they've been talking about this whole time and, uh, the way the guy gets totally engulfed in flames. It, everything about it is is riveting. So yeah, yeah. I, I mean, down to the music and and the and the the choreography. I mean, everything about that. Those last like ten or twelve minutes was just perfect. Right, and then when everything is over and Danny's standing there with the ashes and the smoke and there's just her silhouette. It's pretty amazing. It's pretty good. And she, good. And she pre- drops the whip. It's yeah, pretty right. good. It's pr- it's and they just walk over. Yeah, that, yeah. Was, that was really yeah. amazing. It's, it's good. It's good. So you basically, you guys, you, you are admitting that I'm right, right? <laughs> That's what's going on right Well, now. and the other, I mean, the other episode that I would put forward or the scene that I would put forward um, is Jamie and Brienne in the baths at Heron Hall. I think that's one of the best scenes of the whole season. And it's not as big of a showpiece, but in terms of acting, writing, cutting, editing, that to me 
was so riveting. And that, you know, I want to say that that was episode six or seven, maybe six. And so, you know, yeah, if you go four, six, nine, that's a, that's a pretty good arc in the middle of the season there. Sure, but then we're just talking about individual episodes then. I mean, you can talk about like like moments or scenes within individual episodes within each season. But season two had a lot of those moments as well. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I, I, I kind of agree with Andrea here in the sense that, well, the thing is, I don't think there were as many holy crap moments like that is amazing. Uh, the scenes you're describing, Joanna, with the bath, I mean, there were many moments like that throughout season one and two of just really powerful uh, dialogue between two characters. Uh, so, so, but, but nothing is like the sacking of Astapor, nothing is like the Red Wedding, and so that's why season three rises above season two for me. Uh, but in any case, we all have our opinion, and it's cool. People like different things. It's cool. <laughs> uh, let's get into emails. We got dozens of emails in response to uh, our take on the last episode of A Cast of Kings. Uh, so let's get into them. Uh, this email comes in from Trey. Trey writes in, uh, wanted to get your ideas about the relationship between Tywin and Tyrion. Haven't read the book, so obviously I don't know what's going to happen in future episodes. But I have a feeling that Tywin secretly respects Tyrion. I know Tywin holds Tyrion responsible for the death of his wife and goes out of his way to let Tyrion know that he wished he was never born, but I think Tywin sees that Tyrion can hold his own with his intelligence. If I'm not mistaken, Tywin did acknowledge, or at least uh, did not deny, Tyrion's claim that he was the key uh, to holding off Stannis' army during Blackwater. Also, whenever Tyrion asserts himself like the placement of the chair in the council room or putting the king in his place, you almost see a proud smirk or look on Tywin's face. Uh, great season for the show and the podcast. Can't wait for next year. Can't wait to hear you guys when Breaking Bad returns. So, uh, thoughts on Tywin and Tyrion. I mean, there was that very emotional scene in the last episode of uh, Game of Thrones where, you know, uh, Tywin confesses that he almost killed Tyrion when Tyrion was a baby. And we got a lot of emails writing in about sort of people's take on that scene. And I got to say, I agree with Trey. I mean, I do think there is some level of respect there. I would say it's a very begrudging respect but that Tyrion does have a, a level of intelligence and cunning that is undeniable uh, what do you guys think? John Robinson? Well you know it's mm. they've, they've built up Charles Dance Tywin Lannister's character so much from the books and that, that I love I, I am going to answer your question I promise that I love because he's done such a good job and we see so much more of his character and I think they're trying to give him so much more to work with because they have such a great actor and it's a great character um if they are trying to pepper in like a bit of a grudging respect into that characterization um i would say i would go beyond grudging to be almost like he resents any goodness like it's like he's so deeply racist about how Tyrion looks that tywin almost hates it anytime that he expresses uh, the good qualities. I don't know. That's just sort of my interpretation. I know you and I disagreed about that scene um, between Tyrion and Tywin, but um, you know, I can see where people are coming from. I just, I think that they underestimate how much Tywin sees Tyrion's physical form as just such a deep shame and a deep mark on his family. So I don't know. Andrea, any thoughts on the dynamic in this relationship? I just, uh, well, I think the acting sort of obviously colored the way that we're looking at that. But I also 
because I have this background, you know, with with the actual written material, right? I, I just read it completely differently. And then also, I think that people want to find like some hope or some respect, you know, for for Tyrion because because we do love him so much. But it, it still just came across as you know, just sort of vitriolic is is a really strong word. But I mean, within the context of this world and within the context of you know, his mother dying and, and everything else. Like, I don't read it as respect at all. I mean, it's, it's, it's scary and it's frightening and it, it's, you know, hateful in a very formal way to me. Interesting. Okay. Uh, well, thanks for the email, Trey. Uh, let's move on. James writes in. James, it looks like from this phone number he lives in Massachusetts somewhere. Um, you guys talked briefly about the Starks and Rob specifically and their role in the context of the traditional hero roles in fantasy. I believe that this show is special because it distorts the line between hero and villain more than any other show I have ever seen. Um, and I'm going to skip forward here, uh, but he writes, uh, James writes in, I believe that Tywin Lannister is the closest thing that there is to a hero in Westeros right now. Uh, and he specifically, James specifically leaves out Essos because uh, that would include Daenerys. But before you jump out of your seat, hear me out. Every move Tyrion, uh, Tywin has made has been for the betterment of his house. Is he brutal in his approach? Sometimes. Remember, it wasn't him who physically carried out the attack on the Starks and broke the laws of hospitality. He simply all, uh, offered Walter Frey uh, protection. None of Tywin's moves in the game have been derived from an extreme emotion like the Starks. They have all been out of necessity to save his family and better position them for the future. They have been utterly selfless. Sure, Tywin and Cersei might not be thrilled at the idea of their arranged marriages, but had both of them been left to their own devices and acted on their selfish emotions like Robin Catelyn without the supervision of Tywin, my guess is they would have suffered a similar fate. I don't know about you, but I would have rather be ma- I'm sorry, I would rather be married to a cute, albeit way younger, redhead than be full of arrows. Ty- uh, Tyrion made the argument that Tywin hasn't done anything unselfish, but I would bet that he would marry Stannis' daughter if he believed it would gain his household a tactical advantage. I'm not trying to come across like Barney Stinson rooting for the blonde-haired asshole and karate kid. I'm also not trying to say that Tywin is a traditional fantasy story hero. My point is that the show beautifully distorts that line so a case can be made that through stern, selfless actions, Tywin has given his family name the highest value. In a world where your name means practically everything, that's much more heroic than running around making impulsive emotional decisions that get you and all your bannermen killed. If the story ended today and thousands of years passed after the end of season three, the hypothetical Westerosi teenager would open their history books and see Tywin Lannister, not Ned, Rob, or Catelyn Stark, as the heroic defender of King's Landing that cemented his family's legacy for years to come. I'd love to hear your take on this. Uh, again, absolutely love the show. Can't wait to hear what happens next. Jonah Robinson, do you think Tywin Lannister is a hero? Well, I think I completely agree with James in that I think what's interesting about Martin's work is that it allows for many different definitions of hero and you have a lot of people that you could root for. You could root for Arya, you could root for Jamie, you could root for, you know, a num- any number of people. It I think it depends on what you prize. Like there isn't a c- very clear hero. They killed the very clear hero in the first season and in doing so sort of made, you know, Martin made some sort of argument about, you know, this is not your father's sword and sandal. Um, story. The hero is dead, you know, and so who do we pick up and follow from there? And I think we've sort of been tr- struggling to 
grapple onto something. And we've talked about this before on the show. And and Tyrion, uh, you know, as Andrea just mentioned, Tyrion is such an engaging, aided by the performance of Peter Dinklage, such an, such an engaging character. But he, you know, he's not a quote-unquote good guy. Tywin is not where I would put my allegiance. And for me, as I mentioned before, the most compelling arc for me this season was was Jamie. And Jamie is certainly like textbook anti-hero. So, you know, I think you can sort of push your push your chips in with whoever you want. If you want to pick boring Jon Snow, that's fine. You can do that. But, you know, but it's like I think Martin presents all these shades of of good and bad. And isn't that a more interesting story to tell? You know, yeah, I, I agree. I agree that there's no clear hero, and that you could theoretically, um, you know, to quote Charlie Kaufman's synecdoche or to paraphrase Charlie Kaufman's synecdoche, like everyone is the hero of their own story, right? And each of these characters is a hero in their own story, uh, right? And so, however you want to interpret it is is kind of up to you. Um, do you have a hero, Andrea? Is there is there a hero for you without without giving away any spoilers? Any any favorite characters from this season? I would just weigh in on this part with with uh, with with Tywin. I would think that um, I mean I, I can only like think of him like in in like this weird analogy. Like to me, like what this is gonna sound so dorky, but like what Admiral Kane was to Battlestar Galactica, like in that that very stern and, and very very decisive and we understand kind of what this role is like in the family name like you were talking about is is and that those are fireworks going off apparently um (laughs) uh, is what he is to me within the context of this show and it's you know sure i mean the way that the way that he's presented in this season yeah i i would say that that i have like this begrudging respect for him and, and this grudging admiration and yes i would totally put my chips in with him but i don't necessarily think that he's the hero or the good guy interesting interesting well on that note uh scott from colorado colorado springs writes in uh dave and joanna i really don't see how you can agree with tywin's assessment that his machinations of the red wedding was dozens versus thousands of lives we see in the finale that the Frey and bolton bannermen are slaughtering all the stark men there and the vast majority of the Stark bannermen were at the wedding. Granted, Tywin saved all of his Lannister men from death, but the Starks have damn well been completely wiped out, which is not dozens. So the Red Wedding wasn't just registered to end the war. It was an utter massacre of thousands of men. Uh, and this is in response to comments that I made kind of, a, kind of agreeing with Tywin about the last episode when Tywin said... Hey, we killed a few thousand people. Like we killed a few dozen people. It it's was the greater worth- good. It's the greater good. It was worth saving thousands of lives. And right. okay, so Scott brings up a really good point, which is that yes, in fact, Stark men are being slaughtered by the hundreds or thousands. Point taken. Point taken. But I do still think there's a point there in that, in the end, if you have two you know armies going up against each other, and one of them is totally slaughtered, and then you know scattered to the wind versus you know having them fight out in a in a terrible you know endless war of attrition that uh you know in that in the scenario in the in the first scenario less people overall will die uh it might be a very slight difference but i do think it's worth pointing out um can can i say something about this joanna yeah real quick please so i think that that when when he's talking about this specifically that when he talks about the few dozen, he, he's not talking about the 
the masses of bannermen because to him they don't matter you know they are all pawns within within this particular game or war battle or whatever you want to call it you can almost call it a game of thrones i (laughs) think we might be able to there you go but um no i mean he thinks of he thinks of like the heads of these groups or the heads of these families or the heads of these bannermen as as those particular targets that he's talking about and that that's where he's focusing on like if we're talking about like the heads of you know the heads of of the houses and the heads of the houses You know, everybody else is just collateral damage to him. But I mean, that's just my interpretation of that. No, that's that's a really good insight. Uh, You you should be on our show more often, Andrea. I think you should. I think I agree. Um, Yeah, no, I completely agree with Andrea that that he doesn't count those fighting men as men, but but he could you know be acknowledging certain noble heads of houses that that were killed um, in that slaughter. I don't know how you guys felt about that episode, but when I was talking with, about that episode with my friends, I was like, it just was so strange how the Red Wedding seemed so small compared to reading it, where it just seemed much larger and just a much bigger scale. The, the dining hall seemed so much smaller and, and the, uh, the deaths seemed so fewer than they actually read on the page. But well, then, you know, yeah, they changed sorry. that last episode when you saw everything burning, of course, but it just didn't seem as big then. Yeah, and we talked about that, I think, a bit in terms mm-hmm. of the book affords you the opportunity to meet all those second string characters like Daisy Mormont or like, you know, Great John Umber, stuff like that. Like all these other northern men that we got to know over the books that the TV show as a medium doesn't have room for. And so you need to hit those three major deaths. You need to hit Kat and Rob and Talisa to stand in for all those other secondary characters that we see die. You know, it's like at the end of Hamlet, like the stage is littered with bodies, but let's say we didn't have time to meet Laertes and like a couple other people. So we just like, we need to write it all on like three major deaths. And so that's the the disadvantage of the TV medium, you know? And And I think Dave and I talked about how Maybe that's why they upped the drama on the Talisa death so much is because it had to carry so much more uh, to stand in for all those other characters who died. So and I don't know. I, I, I also, there's probably also some economic calculation going on there as well. Like the like the actual physical hall that the Red Wedding like took place in, or where, you know where the slaughtering took place in. Uh, you know, it was pretty big. It was like a couple dozen, few dozen people. But uh, I mean, I, I don't know. Was it, like, quote-unquote larger in the books? I don't know about the size of the hall, but, I mean, if you think back to season one, um, in that hall in at um, Winterfell. In the pilot, yeah. Yeah, in the pilot at Winterfell, when, you know, when the royal court is there and they meet the Starks and the hall is full, I would say that that felt bigger to me or at least busier than exactly. this did. I agree that it felt kind of spare and maybe they did that on purpose so that you could really sort of zero in on the tension. But maybe, you know, to us reading who had read the books, like it seemed more like that first uh, hall scene in the pilot where it's just sort of boisterous and there's a lot going on and that sort of stuff. So, right. you know, uh, but but in terms of like the physical dimensions of the hall, like I, I don't know about that. But in terms of the fullness and the busyness and all the things going on. I, I agree that it was much different in the in the show. Still, so effective in the yeah, show. Yeah, I was going to say it is quite effective in the show. And I don't know, like, if they had made the hall three times as large, would it have been as effective? I don't like. I don't know. I, I don't think it would have been more effective. Is what I'm saying. Like but that's that's more semantic. I think it really goes more to what Joanna's saying about 
just the the noise and the crowd and the people and the the activity right. going on because it's just it seems so still and sterile. Interesting. Because we didn't. Yeah. I mean, we didn't know anyone except for right, right. You know. But whereas in the pilot, you know, you see Arya doing some shit and you see Rob doing some shit and Theon and stuff like that. You know, it's all over the place and, and all the different Robert and like the girls and Yeah, right. yeah. You know. There's just like a bunch of stuff going on. So I, I agree that it was a, a different tone. But, you know, I, I think that was very intentional and it is not at all how it was in my head, but it still like made me cry. So I right. don't know. Right. The, the beauty of book readers and like once again not to like make you feel completely outnumbered on this podcast Dave I'm sorry but But you are but (laughs) but the beauty for book readers is that we get both we get that experience that we had with the book in our head and then we get this like this awesome scene that happened on TV that was so affecting for everyone Um, so that makes us you know doubly lucky and I hope more people I think more and more people are catching up with the books you know going forward because you're almost greedy and you want to know what's going on with the story and you want all of it. You want it fleshed in as well. So I don't know. But were you guys able to actually like rewatch that episode? I think that that is the only episode out of all the seasons that I just have not been able to rewatch. Oh, I, I rewatch that as frequently as I watch uh, the sacking of Astapor. Yeah. So. <laughs> Dave's like every morning with my cereal. That's right. I just put on Reigns of Castamere. No, because even as a scene, like just as a scene of like film, I know it's not really film, but just as a scene, like, the way it's constructed is so kind of expert. You know, like, every decision, every edit that was made just feels so considered. Like, when, you It's know, very calculated, certainly. Yeah, it's very calculated. Like, you know, the unsheathing of the sword and approaching Talisa from behind and, you know, it cuts to Rob and you see Rob's reaction and, and so on. And, like, the, like e- even even some focus pulls are amazing. Like... The way where you kind of there's this one shot where you see Talisa's hand moving slightly in the foreground over her like uh, over her bloodied womb, and like you see Rob's reaction to it. Like, obviously, I've really spent a lot of time studying this scene. It is really, <laughs> it is really effective, and just I find, like, like sort of interesting and scary that you can rewatch that that many times, David. Well, you know, <laughs> that's yeah that's 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 a maybe good we should reaction. talk about that yeah no that's true we should we should but we're not going to because we have too many emails <laughs> um, uh but so, suffice to say yeah it, it was very effective and i i mean because you just are seeing something like for me i i don't feel like i've seen many scenes like that just in my life you know what i mean like, when you watch an action movie, you might have seen an action scene that's very similar to an action scene in another movie. This is a scene that's, like, there's just nothing like... It defies comparison for me to anything else I've seen. Um, and I, I am someone who prizes uniqueness, uh, perhaps above other things like wholesomeness. And or, familial slaughter, apparently. There you go. All good. Um, so, I want Andrea always to be on the show. Yes. I love you, Joanna. So... <laughs> Josh from Houston writes in, uh, now that the wedding has happened, and actually, let me pause, Dave Chen's going to pause here for a second and say, like, very careful with the spoilers here. Uh, Josh from Houston writes in, now that the wedding has happened, and I don't have to worry about spoiling anything, I'm curious to hear from you if you think George R.R. R. Martin would change something he had planned for future books based on what has happened in the HBO series. Specifically, there's been much speculation in the book about, I don't know who this character is, but that plot we talked line is, about it before. Okay. The Jane, the who Talisa took the place That's of. That's right. About Jane, but that plotline is quite dead. 
I guess I'm wondering if you think George R. R. Martin is looking at the HBO series as an edited version of his work or just a different way of telling the story. Um, so, thoughts on this. I know that in the past, George R. R. Martin has said that, um, that he thinks of the, uh, the show like a locomotive, right? Um, here we go. Let me, let me pull this up. Um, but he has said, like, uh, he can hear... Let me, I'm going I'm to pull up uh, an interview here. Uh, I'm writing book six, The Winds of Winter. And I'm starting to worry because everybody keeps asking me, what are you going to do if the show catches up to you? And I didn't think it was a problem before, but they're moving faster than I am, and it's beginning to scare me. I have not failed to notice this. I feel sometimes as if I'm laying track for a railroad, and I can hear the locomotive coming up behind me. It's building speed, and I see the smoke, and I hear the whistle coming, and I better keep laying that track pretty fast because I'll get squashed if the locomotive comes. But I still have a pretty considerable lead, or at least that's what I'm telling myself. Season 3 is only the first half of book 3. Season 4 will be the second half of book 3. And then I have book 4 and book 5. And those are giant books, which have to be recombined because they're actually parallel. I'm hoping those will be at least two seasons, maybe three. That will give me some time to finish book 6. By the time they're doing that season, I'll be writing book 7. That's my story, and I'm sticking with it. Uh, So... Any any thoughts on this about how George R. R. Martin's going to handle? It? Like that's that's what he what I just read seems like a pretty logical description of how how the book and the series are going to play out. Um, but any concerns, John Robinson, about you know how things will change for uh, book four, book five? I mean, I'm not concerned. I I mean, I think that what we've heard from both the showrunners and George R. R. Martin is that they intend to go further and further afield from the plot that we know in the next couple seasons. And I'm kind of okay with that because I've mentioned before that I think the story gets a little weaker over book four and book five. And so recombining, not only recombining them, but just sort of bolstering it up. And, you know, Weiss and Benioff are very talented storytellers. So, you know, I have no, I I have no doubt that they know how to make effective television out of what Martin has laid out. Um, You know, I'm not that worried about it going off the map. That being said, um, it is interesting because there are these because the book series is not done. Even we smug, obnoxious book readers have a lot of questions and theories that are hanging out there, like what's going on with Jane Westerling. And now we know, like, there's a period at the end of that sentence, and you know, it's like. I believe J.K. Rowling, like when they were making the films of the Harry Potter books, she told them, she's like, these plots are important, so make sure you hit these. She wasn't done writing yet, but she's like, okay, I can give you this much information, which is that you can't leave this B plot or C or D plot out because it's going to come back and be important. And so that is sort of informing things for the book readers. It's like, if a D plot has been cut from the TV show, I feel like George R. R. Martin must have given them a tip of like, okay, that's not going to, you know, that person is not going to be the secret king in book seven or whatever, you know, like <laughs> right. those sort of hints. And so it's a really interesting way in which the two mediums are interacting, because, particularly because Martin hasn't finished. Andrea, do you remember how long it was between A Feast for Crows and A Dance with Dragons? Um. I- I feel like it was a decade. It wasn't quite a decade. It was, was, what was it, like six years? Six years, seven years, something like that. Like, so when he very optimistically is like, I've got three years, I'm fine. (laughs) The rest of us are like, really, George, buddy? Uh, But I mean, that was was even before the start of the show. But I mean, this, I mean, this in and of itself is, I mean, people are writing academic papers about 
this particular feedback loop and the way that it's affecting, you know, future developments in the books and future, you know, developments in the series and, and, you know, it's not a bad thing. I, mean, I think that, that you guys do a very good job specifically of focusing on the show itself as its own creation, as its own canon. And, I mean, don't forget, I mean, Martin has, like, a huge history as a television writer. I mean, he was writing TV back in the 80s, and, and he understands how these things go. And I think that it's just easier at this point, especially without any new books to read, to focus in on the TV show and to... And to just look at what they're doing there as its own conceptual stuff. And yeah, it is putting those periods where we had the questions and we are wondering like, you know, the girl that we saw talking with Sansa in the pilot episode, we, we don't know like where these girls are going. We don't know what's going on here, but it's absolutely affecting it. I mean, how can it not? I mean, how can he not look at this critical response or at this sort of like massive phenomenon that the show has become and not have it impact him as an artist and a writer and as somebody who has a long history in both the written medium and, you know, the visual medium. Good question. Good question. I mean, I think think there's no way he can't. So, no. And I think, I mean, Andrea makes a good point, which is that, you know, this interaction, the feedback loop, as you say, I mean, academic papers, I just think it's so fascinating. I think the whole thing is so fascinating. It's not that Game of Thrones is the best television show that has ever come on television. It's not that, you know, A Song of Ice and Fire is the best book series ever, ever written. But the way in which these two things are interacting is some sort of alchemical, fascinating pop culture, you know, explosion that I just, I love. And I'm so glad that we have this podcast, that we have this great community, and that we're able to sort of chew it over as much as we do because it's really and fun. And argue about it and talk about it and just sort of like push and pull on, you know, things like made up characters. Right. And the uh, the Lannister honeypot theory, which uh, a lot of people <laughs> which was awesome. I agree. Awesome. I agree. A lot of people seem to have uh, dis- dis- like seem to dismiss it as you know. I mean, l- let's just put it this way, guys. I still believe. Okay, I, st- <laughs> I still believe. All right. So, do you have like a whole conspiracy theory room with like articles and and bits of string? That's right. Like connecting things. That's right. I have a, bu- I have a bulletin board or a series of bulletin boards, as it were. So. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah. He keeps rewatching episode nine. So That's right. You don't know. There you go. Uh, <laughs> I, yeah, I'm trying to figure out. That's exactly why, uh, Andrea. I'm trying to figure out how it all locks in together. Um, Joey from Los Angeles, California writes in. I'm sure this will come up, but just to be certain, I was wondering if you guys could go into exactly how David was spoiled in regards to Theon's storyline and how much he was told. Uh, so a couple of people spoiled me. <laughs> Um, and and I, I, this is interesting. I think this is interesting. I, I don't want this to just be an email to discuss like how Dave was spoiled, um, but rather to kind of explore the idea of how being spoiled like makes you view the show differently. So, right. um, I really like the idea of somebody like you know chasing you down and holding you down and just reading the book aloud to you for like an <laughs> hour and a half, where you're like, no, no. I see. I think I think we have learned too much about your fantasies, Andrea, tonight. Oh, um, no. But <laughs> the way I was spoiled is a couple people um, mentioned it to me. Uh, like they mentioned the uh, what they did was they they didn't even say who the person was that was torturing Theon. They just said. That um, 
they just pointed out, hey, it's interesting what uh, Roos's um, sigil is, right? They're just like, oh, yeah, Roos's sigil is kind of interesting. And then once you hear it, uh, you can't not notice what Roos's sigil is, right? And you can't not notice that it is a you know flayed man, and um, and that that it strongly resembles the piece of furniture that Theon is on, and therefore you kind of make the connection that somehow uh, Roos is responsible, or someone related to Roos is responsible for Theon's fate. Um, and the thing is, like it actually is like in a lot of scenes throughout the season that we've. I think we discussed this in our last episode, Joanna, uh, but that. Like until you're told what it is, um, you don't really you don't un- until you know what you're looking for. I don't think necessarily you'd notice it. And the thing is, I understand like for book readers why they might be smug or frustrated with people who don't notice it because they're like, oh my gosh, look, it's right there in the background, like right between Brienne and Jamie when they're talking about it. Like, no, I mean exactly, and we've talked about this before. How if you know what you're looking for, it's just staring you in the face. And if you don't, like, why would you necessarily notice, you know? Um, or maybe you did and you didn't make the connection, what have you. But my, I mean, my question for you, Dave, is do you think you would have – how do you think it – I mean, it's just all, you know, you know, supposition. But how do you think it affected the way that you enjoyed that particular storyline or, as the case may be, did not enjoy it, you know? Well, a couple things. Um, first of all, I mean, I, I do think there's a strong possibility that I would have figured it out um, in season three, episode nine, when they had a, a close up of um, the Flayed Man chess piece, like on the thing. I would be like, oh, I would have made the connection, like, okay, that looks suspiciously like the thing that Theon is tied to. Um, as it is, that moment, that moment of revelation was deprived from me, and I can never get it back. Um, so. <laughs> That, so that's kind of one way that it, it kind of changed the way I view the scene, the, the, the whole season. Um, like, how, how did knowing affect things? I mean, the thing is, I also kind of knew that uh, Bolton was, you know, not totally uh, above board with the Lannisters. I'm sorry, with, with the Starks at that point. But putting all that aside, I do think it's kind of a stretch to... Like, okay, so let's say I knew Roose Bolton, like that, that from the beginning, I knew that Roose Bolton's house was responsible for Theon's torture. It's still not 100% clear, like, do you know what I mean? Like, why would that be the case? It's not like, oh, okay, the Bolton household is responsible for Theon's torture. That makes complete sense. It doesn't make complete sense. Like, you need the piece of uh, Bolton's uh, bastard son is totally insane and nutso. Do you know what I mean? Right. For, for it all to make sense. So, uh, so just knowing what it was would not have necessarily made the plot uh, any, uh, any better for me. And in fact, like, even knowing that it was kind of Bolton's household, I didn't know that piece about like, the, the you know, insane son. And so I found that out, really, in the season finale, and it was a total letdown anyway, right? So, so yeah, again, right, like, we're going to find out next season whether all that uh, stuff with Theon was worth it. But overall, it didn't really spoil that much because the way that plotline was executed, I did not find to be worthwhile. I did not find it to be worth uh, the sort of discomfort that it subjected the audience to. Um, how about so you? So you're saying you you haven't been rewatching the Theon torture scenes over and over again? <laughs> that is correct. 
Okay. That is correct. Um, Did everybody not just fast forward through those? Uh, I mean, I, they, they were just the torture porn itself. I mean, it was right. Just, well, if you're uh, watching it live, uh, I, I, I could not fast forward through it, but I wanted to. I wanted to. <laughs> uh, I mean, Andrea, what did you think of, of how the Theon storyline played out? Uh, I mean, did you think it's, that was totally necessary to see all that stuff? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to do a Joanna here. I'm just going to say, well... <laughs> <laughs> You're going to pull a there's, Joanna. There's some understanding that you might have otherwise about someone's past I, behaviors. I, I get it. I get it. I got, just, I, I'm, I'm picking ugly, up what you're putting down. I'm picking up what you're putting down. Ugly I get it. And, and yeah, no, I didn't need to see it. I, you know, of course they have to check in, but no, it, it didn't do anything for me. Okay. Gotcha. That was a good Joanna impression. I liked it. Thanks, Andrea. <laughs> I mean, I will say that as torture scenes, they were very well done in the sense that you really felt the pain. Like Alfie Allen really sold being tortured. I, I believe well, the showrunners love Theon. I mean, they love Alfie Allen. Yeah. They are very upfront about that. And I think that these must have been the way that they did this. You know, our focus right now is not on why Ramsay Snow is so crazy or, or, or why the Bolton House might be doing these things. It's about Theon's transformation. Right. 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 Um, but I didn't watch any of those days. All right. Yeah. Well, I mean, you, you definitely you definitely see Theon get totally broken down in this season. That's for sure. And you can see it with him on fast forward too. There you go. There you go. <laughs> well, I just the one thing I want to say is that no matter what, no matter our distress with how much torture and the way the the plotline was executed and whether or not we were spoiled, you have to give it up for the actor who played Ramsay Snow. Um, because that kid did a really good job of playing someone completely batshit insane. Right. And you he's know? also uh, in uh, that show Misfits as well, right? Yeah, Misfits. Yeah. yeah. I won Rion, right? Or what? It, however you pronounce it. Yeah, you... I never try to say his name because it's very Welsh and I'm afraid of butchering it. So. I won Rion. That's, okay. That's, no, that's terrible. I know that's Re- right. Rion rhymes with Theon. That, yes. that we can maybe guess. There so. you go. There you go. Uh, so, yeah, Agreed. Uh, but, I, you know, I say it's really well t- done torture, and I don't necessarily say that lightly just because there are, like, bad torture scenes. You know what I mean? Like, in, in the history of TV and film, like, there are scenes of torture that are just totally unconvincing and totally um, non, uh, non-threatening, I want to say. Like, they don't, they don't make you feel as, dis- as uncomfortable as you feel in this episode. Uh, or in the episodes where where the torture features, and so uh, it is notable for that reason alone. Now, whether you think it's actually necessary for the story or for us to see, that's a different story. But like, I, I think that it's worth pointing out that the torture scenes were well done. So, <laughs> <laughs> and on that note, uh, Jeff from Mount Royal, New Jersey, writes in this email: Dave, as an engineer, I appreciate your request for more obvious rules and stakes. But as an uber fan of sci-fi, I see things differently. By definition, something classified as sci-fi defines it as a break in the rules of our own reality. That is what I find to be fun. I often ask myself the same questions. If blank can do this with this ability, then why can't he do blank? I answer the question with, Jeff, it's not your story. Let the author do what he wants with the characters and story and just enjoy it for what it is. I'm going to end this discussion with an analogy. Accept the questionable magic and abilities as if you were a drunk single guy accepting any woman at a bar. Will she be cheating on a boyfriend? Does she have diseases? Can I pass out safely at her place? Do I care? 
Can her underwear change color with her mood? With a nice beer buzz, all those rules, stakes, details, and questions don't matter or even occur to you. All that matters is the fun. Uh, so, I don't oh. know. <laughs> What's up, Jonah? I didn't remember that email. Yeah. <laughs> so, and yeah, I don't know. It's too long to understand the analogy. I, I don't know if um, comparing sexual recklessness to, like, being lax on on the rules of Game of Thrones is necessarily the analogy that he wanted because uh, I, I'm the type of guy that would think about those questions. <laughs> <laughs> but that's just me, you know? That is just me. That is just you, Dave. No, it's not just you. And no one um, else. <laughs> no, and, you know, I really am never a proponent of, like, turn-your-brain-off entertainment. I, you know, there are certain, like, popcorn summer flicks that you can just go and watch explode on the big screen, and that's one thing. That's its own thing. But I don't think Game of Thrones should be seen that way. And I think a lot of people who object to the way that we do this po- – I mean, there aren't a lot of people who object to the way we do this podcast, but those that do object to the – places we find flaws and that's because they're like it's just fun and awesome enjoy it and i just think game of thrones is slightly better than that it's not just naked ladies and dragons and you know that sort of stuff i think it's got some real substance and quality to it so i I think that's why it's worth putting through the critical grinder that being said i think dave you and i have had conversations before about i am more indulgent towards sci-fi fantasy maybe than you are just from prolonged exposure to it. So, you know, I don't know. I don't know if you would agree with that. But I, I would say that, you know, I don't think of the things that you, that bother you don't bother me. And I don't think it's – I think it's because of the my exposure to the genre. But I could be wrong. I'm but. just very selectively critical in general. Uh, right. And I so. would go home with any lady at the bar who hit on me. So, you know, it's Th- just – That's right. That's not true. We've seen that happen. Um <laughs> <laughs> Andrea, what type of are, are you uh, very forgiving of uh, sci-fi and fantasy and, and rule bending and so on and so forth, or are you kind of you like your rules to be defined, and if they deviate, then f this noise? No, I mean that this is. I mean, sure. I mean, we, we can find flaws, like Joanna said, everywhere, or we'll find flaws within the context of this fantasy genre because it's it it is different than sci-fi and. You know, fantasy says that we are going to ascribe to a certain set of rules that somebody's going to present to us, but they are ever-changing, especially when you have something like this series that is, you know, not finite yet. You know, we don't have our clear beginning and end. And so I think that, especially when we're talking about the show itself, we're finding critical areas to pursue that are more related to the way it's produced. I mean... I don't know. I think that's part of art. That's part of everybody's individual interpretation of what they're taking home with that. I don't want to have to know that there are, you know, 12 different planets or 12 different, you know, fairy tribes. And this is what their languages are and everything else. That, that to me just gets tedious and boring. I don't read those sorts of books. I don't watch that sort of entertainment. It does have to be dumbed down for me. And Game of Thrones does a really good job of sort of taking this in giant world and presenting it to us in a way and sometimes hitting us over the head with it like the whole the whole um you know the 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 rights of guests within a household just to sort of enforce that selectively about what's important but i don't know i don't really have a good answer to that i mean sure i can take some of it and turn my brain off and some of it is you know i can't 
but that's just my role as a viewer or a reader. And that's your role as a viewer or a reader. Well, what I was going to say is something that, you know, we've had readers or listeners bring up, and I don't know if we've talked about it as much on the show, is that the plot of A Song of Ice and Fire is that magic is slowly seeping back into this world. So not just that the rules, the rules are ever-changing for everyone. It's not us, the viewer. It's the characters as well, like the White Walkers and the dragons. Like, these are new things in their world as well, you know, and so or, – or, or old things come, come back again, you know. And so it is interesting because it's not as defined for them as it might be if we were, you know, watching Lord of the Rings and it's just like, okay, this is, this is how it's been and how it will be and that sort of stuff. This is about how magic has reawakened in this world. And but that's part of the excitement of watching that is, is yeah. seeing things unfold and seeing things that we didn't think were important or characters that we just thought were sort of in the background really move forward and, and the idea of, of magic. I mean, first season, like we're watching Danny, you know, anybody who hadn't read the books could not quite fathom where this was going with the whole dragon concept or where the magic was coming back into the world. And and that's really interesting and, and fun and, you know, part of what holds our interest. But everybody's interpretation of that can vary. I mean, does that make any sense? Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Totally. totally. And I think that's actually a pretty good place to wrap this up for today. Andrea. Thank you so much. This has been excellent and uh, really appreciate you donating to the show as well. So let's do this again. Thanks you guys so are so welcome. Thanks so much. And, thank you uh, guys so much too. Really appreciate your support. And um, thank you guys who are listening right now to A Cast of Kings. Uh, this is, Joanna, this is probably going to be the last episode we do of A Cast of Kings for quite a while, if I'm, if I'm guessing correctly, right? I, I mean, there's a possibility that we will do some bonus episodes or even a Kickstarter for season one. Um, these are all things we've talked about. These are all things that have been discussed. They're under discussion. And, you know, if you want to find out more developments about these uh, topics, you can follow us on Facebook at uh, facebook.com slash a cast of kings. Uh, and there you'll also find details of the next podcast that we'll be doing about, about Breaking Bad, which is a show that people listening to this podcast would probably enjoy if you don't watch it yet. So... Yeah, and if you haven't watched Breaking Bad yet, you have time to catch up before the next season starts. Yes. So and take- it's it's so good, you guys. So good. Pretty freaking good. Um, so anyway, thank you guys. Uh, and we'll see you on Facebook and on the interwebs. And uh, Andrea, again, thank you so much. Well, <laughs> then until next time, ladies and gentlemen, uh, thank you for listening to A Cast of Kings. We'll see you later. <laughs>